Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan. We've had many people tell us about various diets, and we've had people tell us about the hazards of consuming too much sugar in our diets. Uh, so we're going to explore this a little further in respect to a disease that we all have a concern about, and that is cancer. So we will look at how sugar plays in the role of cancer and what diets might be the best to make cancer go away. With us, we have Miriam Kalamian, who just wrote a book, Keto for Cancer, Ketogenic Metabolic Therapy as a Targeted Nutritional Strategy. Miriam is a nutrition consultant, educator, and author specializing in the implementation of ketogenic therapies. She earned her Master's of Education from Smith College and her Master of Human Nutrition from Eastern Michigan University. She is board-certified nutrition by the Board for Certification of Nutrition Specialists. She's got a decade of experience in providing comprehensive guidelines for specific diets for specific diagnoses. She's integrated nutritional therapies with metabolic therapies and lifestyle modifications, so each person has a personalized treatment. So, Miriam, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be talking about my work. Well, I want to hear about your work. So... What got you interested in a diet for cancer patients? Well, actually, the way I came to it was that my son was diagnosed with brain cancer in 2004. He was just four years old at the time, and, you know, that's a a real blow to find out that your four-year-old has cancer. Um, We did what we were told because we were too afraid to do anything else. And we weren't really aware of any options. So we just kind of went along with the program, and um, we ran through all of the acceptable options pretty quickly. So in the spring of 2007, he was already being moved to a palliative treatment. Um, it wasn't that I was looking for a cancer, anti-cancer diet. I just was online, and it popped in on the screen one day, and uh, it was uh, Dr. Seyfried's mouse model research in 2007, and, and there was zero support for it within the oncology community, zero support. But we figured, you know, what have we got to lose? So we put him on the diet, and he had an amazing response in just three months. So that's, that's when I said, I've got to learn everything I can, because there's nobody out there that's going to help me or anybody else. And uh, that's what led to my education, and I've been doing this ever since. I've been working with people for a decade now. What was your son's response? How did his condition change? Well, he um, nothing had really made an impact on uh, tumor metabolism. And within three months, so we had an, an, an MRI as he was kicked off of his clinical trial, and it showed the tumor progressing and, and growing, moving into new areas. And uh, we put him on the diet. And three months later, he had another MRI, and the tumor had shrunk back away from, uh, from the margins, and the, 
the actual metabolic activity was greatly reduced. And nothing had made that impact. And it was like the only... So when somebody says to me, you know, well, you know, there's no evidence for it, you know, I lived with the evidence for it. My my little guy responded beautifully to a ketogenic diet. So when you say there is a metabolic change, uh, how did you assess that there's a metabolic change? Oh, good question. Thank you. Um, he the the MRI picks up metabolic activity. Uh, PET scans um, are used in other places in the body, um, but because the brain uses so much glucose, it's not as uh, reliable an indicator of what's going on. You can't really like parse it out as well. So they use MRI and they use something called contrast material, and the contrast material. Um, uh, picks, uh, the tumor picks up that contrast material and it kind of lights it up on the MRI image uh, so you know that there's a lot of metabolic activity and where there's a lot of metabolic activity in cancer, you're going to have cancer cell pr- proliferation and you're going to have tumor growth. So you're talking about the metabolic activity of the cancer and that metabolic activity is what sustains its growth? Yeah. The, the, in, in other words, even though it wasn't showing that it was utilizing more glucose, it was lit up. And, uh, and being lit up is an indication of, of uh, really uh, increased metabolic activity. And what would increase metabolic activity is more glucose being processed in the cancer cells. So tell me about your diet. What is your diet? Uh, it's, it, what we did for our son was a very classic ketogenic diet, uh, the same diet that they use for um, pediatric epilepsy. And uh, so it was very limited in carbohydrate, 10 or 12 grams a day, and just enough protein to, uh, to meet his needs, and then the rest of the diet was fat. So um, in an adult, if you want to kind of carry that thinking over to an adult, that's about 5% carbohydrate or less um, when you're working with cancer. Um, and around 10%, uh, give or take, on um, protein, and then the rest is, is fat. So it can be a diet as high as 85% fat, calories from fat. Okay, so when you say percentage, is that by weight or by calories? Uh, percentage of total calories in the diet. If you, it, there's uh, other calculations like in epilepsy, they do go by gram weights instead, and they call that diet ratio. It's a little different. Okay, so how much carbohydrate can you eat? So 5% carbohydrate diet, say, for a 2,000-calorie daily diet, uh, what does that allow somebody to eat? Uh, okay, let's see, 2,000, 200, 100, 425. That would be about 25 uh, grams of carbohydrate. Um, in brain cancer, I like to keep it lower. I like to keep it around 12. Um, but in, uh, like, breast cancer, I usually start people with around 20 grams of carbohydrate. So that's probably equivalent to a couple of pieces of fruit? Uh, you know, I um, wouldn't recommend fruit as being the go-to because you'd be using those carbs up really, really fast. So it's... Uh, a, Generally, non-starchy vegetables and salad greens and saute greens. Um, the carbohydrates that are found in nuts and seeds are part of that total. Uh, and, you know, I don't like people wasting them on things like sugar-free creamers or, uh, or, or starchy vegetables. Okay. So starchy so, vegetables this, such course, as lima beans without... are not a good thing to include. What's that? 
So starchy vegetables such as lima beans would not be a good thing to include. Right. The diet, at least in the beginning, doesn't have any legumes and doesn't have any, uh, any start, um, grains and it doesn't have any uh, added sugars at all. So uh, what is the evidence? So this diet, I understand, starves the cancer. So uh, can you really starve your cancer of glute, uh, its metabolic inputs? You know, um, that's, a, that's a great question because it comes up all the time. Um, because the, the most um, simple view of this diet for cancer is that it's going to starve the cancer of glucose. And that is technically not uh, accurate. You are low, certainly lowering the availability of glucose to be run through cancer cells. Um, but your glucose levels actually stay with, with uh, what they call physiological norms. So uh, even though you're lowering, you're keeping it low and steady, which is really important, uh, you're not really eliminating the, um, the glucose. You can't do that because there are things in the body that need glucose, and we have a way of compensating for that. If we're not getting it in through diet, then our livers can make glucose. It's a, um, it's a, it's, everybody has that adaptation. We wouldn't be alive if, if we didn't have that adaptation because we'd never get through even just a regular night's sleep if we didn't have the ability to make at least some glucose, um, especially in response to hormone signals. So although it's kind of technically inaccurate to say starve your glucose, it's so simple. We go there. We talk about that. But what you're really doing is you're uh, with, by changing meal composition and meal timing, you're impacting these um, pathways that are associated with cancer progression. And, you know, it gets a little technical to go into them, but I certainly go into it in, in my book. I, people can get as much or as little science as they want out of what they read in my book. And you don't have to know the science in order to do the diet. So uh, when you say ketogenic diet, I assume this is a diet where you go into ketosis and that you're using ketones as a source of fuel rather than glucose? That's it. You make a, a shift from being kind of glucose-centered to being a fat-centered diet. So it takes a few days to, um, to, for us to move from a diet heavy in carbohydrate to one that is very, very low in carbohydrate. There's a little bit of a transition there. But again, our bodies are, you know, evolutionarily, we are attuned to being able to do that. Um, because we, we have to have a fuel for our brain. So uh, glucose is the primary fuel for people who are eating a lot of carbs. But if you're not getting the carbs, let's say, you know, you were out you know, hunting and you didn't have access to food for a few days, you'd still have to be sharp. So uh, ketones are, um, your liver will make ketones, and your liver can't use ketones, so it puts them out into the system basically for your brain to use. So we're still able to think, and as a matter of fact, most people find mental clarity um, by switching to uh, using ketones for fuel, for brain fuel instead of glucose, especially as we get older. Um, you know, we know that glucose metabolism in the brain goes downhill after a certain point, um, and ketone metabolism doesn't. Ketone metabolism, there's some really great studies on that, uh, continues to be able to fuel the brain, and people experience that clarity. Now, you, so by contrast, it sounds like the cancer cells can't use the ketones, and rather they use glucose and glutamine 
as a prime fuels for fermentation in the tumor cells. Is that how it works? That is how it works. Um, they have made a funda- cancer cells have made a fundamental shift away from normal use of glucose. Um, to just fermenting it like crazy. And they need a lot of glucose to do that, and it's a very messy process. Uh, it creates a lot of lactic acid. The lactic acid has to be um, shuttled out of the cell. And where does it go? It goes into the area right around the cell, and it uh, creates acidity in that environment. And acidity is the perfect environment for, uh, for cancer progression. So you get disease progression going on because of this um, uh, this use, this overuse of glucose. So there's a, in the mitochondria of the cell, there's a, a, a different process. Ketones enter the mitochondria of the cell, and they are still able to be utilized for energy there in a um, in a process that doesn't create as much ROS. And I bet your um, your listeners, at least many of your listeners, know what ROS is: reactive oxygen species. Oh uh, uh, yes. So it's, yeah, very damaging. Uh, in, in, in excess, um, and ketones produce far less ROS than uh, glucose or fatty acid metabolism. I also understand the ketogenic diet enhances the treatment of efficacy of certain chemotherapy regimes while reducing the toxicity to normal cells, tissues, and organs. You bet. So tell us about yeah. that. Well, um, so... If you're, especially when you're talking about the brain, uh, ketones are known to have what's called a neurotherapeutic effect. Uh, that's part of what's going on with why it's so effective in epilepsy. Uh, and so you're doing something that's lowering inflammation in the brain, protecting the normal brain cells. And at the same time, the cancer cells are not very efficient at using, um, at using the ketones. They, they, they can't use them because of that enzyme issue, but uh, unfortunately, they can still use glutamine. They can still ferment glutamine, um, and we're working on that. You know, we'll, I, I think there will be a solution to that in the not-too-distant future, uh, but uh, yeah, it, it, when you're protecting normal cells in the brain or elsewhere, uh, and you're uh, starving the cells of their um, preferred fuel, which is glucose, then they become more sensitive to um, these other therapies, uh, especially the, you know, the ones that are going to create a lot of reactive oxygen species. So that's basically what chemotherapy and radiation do. And I also have to point out, though, that there are other metabolic therapies like hyperbaric oxygen, um, hyperthermia, that uh, also create ROS, um, but they don't damage the neighboring healthy cells in the way that chemotherapy and radiation do. I'm not saying not to do it. I'm a firm believer that you need to do something, that the ketogenic diet is not a cure. It's not a standalone therapy. It's an adjunct. It's an add-on therapy for whatever else you're doing. And the majority of people are going to go the conventional route, um, and then there's going to be a subset of people that prefer alternative therapies, and the diet has a place in both of those worlds. You were talking about brain cancer. Is the same thing true for cancers in any part of the body? You know, uh, we know it's true for brain cancer, at least for most of the um, brain cancers that, uh, that, that we know of out there. Um, but we don't know if it's universally true for every cancer. And 
even if you were to take um, a, a cancer like colon cancer um, and you look at a tumor, it's not going to, all of the tumor cells are not going to be the same. There's going to be a lot of variation um, between them, and there may be some that are that the diet would be very effective at wiping out, and some that might be more resistant. Um, so we don't have that information, but what we know is that the diet and meal timing, uh, and, and I want to talk about that at some point, um, does suppress the pathways that are associated with tumor and just disease progression. Yeah, so um, I would say. For most people, that just give it a try because we, we don't know which ones it's not going to work for. And if it's not working for your particular cancer within a couple of months, then, you know, you make the decision whether you want to continue with it or not. But at least you've given it a try. Interesting th- uh, comments I found in your book that the cancer cells actually increase the glucose transporters and the insulin receptors on the cell, which sounds yeah. like they're very adept at getting a lot of sugar to their cells. It sounds like they're pretty clever, so ketogenic diet sounds like it makes sense. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They are. They have these, they have certain adaptations that help them to, um, to survive and thrive, and then they are lacking other adaptations that would help them to survive and thrive during a, um, a nutrient deprivation, which is what we're doing with the diet. We're taking their favorite fuel away from them. Um, and by limiting the amount of protein, um, we're also lowering the amount of glutamine in the diet. Now, that's only a minor part of it, and I really want to point that out to your listeners um, because I've had people contact me and say, oh, I hear that cabbage has uh, glutamine in it, so should I stop eating cabbage? And it's like, absolutely not. If you're staying within the low, the low target for total protein intake on a ketogenic diet, you don't have to make any extra effort to avoid uh, eating foods that might have glutamine. Um, when we don't have enough glutamine through our dietary intake, our bodies are really good at making it. So we're going to make up the, the, the difference by using other amino acid combinations. It's called uh, biosynthesis. So... Um, the, the problem with glutamine is that if you have a breakdown of muscle tissue, um, it, it's releasing glutamine into the system. Or if you have cells that are dying, the glutamine that's in them gets released into the system, and the cancer cells are going to take that up. And how does this compare to the Atkins diet? Well, um, the Atkins diet, actually, that's a, just a great place to start, um, in thinking about it, so I usually will ask somebody um, early on, like somebody that's contacted me and they're wondering whether they can do this diet or not, and I'll say, well, have you ever tried the Atkins diet? And if they've tried it, uh, and whether it was successful or unsuccessful, if they've tried it and, and they didn't experience any you know, terrible side effects from it, then yeah, they, they can do this diet. And the, the Atkins diet um, at the induction phase is a 20 carbohydrate, 20 grams of carbohydrate a day diet. Um, so people understand how to limit carbohydrate. Uh, but with an Atkins diet, there's no, you know, there's no limit on the amount of um, protein or fat. There's not really an encouragement to eat more fat because the goal for Atkins is weight loss. So weight loss to me is a side effect of the diet when I'm working with somebody with cancer. And sometimes it's a good side effect because it helps to kind of um, restore 
um, healthy metabolic function. And at other times, if somebody's kind of low weight to start with or, or, you know, has some nutrient deficiencies to start with, then that's not necessarily a good thing that they're losing weight. And we have to take some extra steps to keep that from happening. What about, I mean, this uh, paleo diet? Paleo diet's very good. I love it when somebody's coming from a paleo diet. I love it because they've already had all this experience in, um, in using whole foods, you know, relying on whole foods in their diet rather than packaged foods. So I don't have to start by showing them a picture of a steamer basket and saying you're going to be using this. Um, so uh, paleo is also a really good option, I think, for children. Uh, a lot of times people, like the whole family, will want to go ketogenic. And uh, unless the children have some metabolic issues that, that they're dealing with, whether it's cancer or epilepsy or um, there's a syndrome called Prader-Willi, uh, it, you know, unless they have some, some metabolic problem, I really would much rather see them on paleo than on keto. Uh, so the difference with paleo is... Um, Paleo allows for the um, uh, intake of starchy vegetables, and sometimes that intake can be so high that uh, it interferes with ketosis. It does interfere with ketosis. The other thing is, is there's no limit on protein, so when people cut out the carbs in their diet, they tend to go a little higher in protein, and protein can interfere with getting to the level of ketosis that we want for a cancer diet. Doesn't, isn't it true that if you have a lot of protein and it's more than you can use, it kind of converts to sugar, which is just as bad as uh, eating a load of sugar? Yeah, it's, it's actually it's not quite as bad because it's coming internally, so your, your body will regulate it, whereas if you're getting sugar from the outside, your body's just dealing with what you're throwing at it. Um, so two totally different ways of, um, of maintaining your proper glucose level. But yes, the excess does get converted um, to glucose, and then that can uh, keep, uh, keep your glucose level high enough so that it's stimulating an insulin response, and if it does that, then, uh, then it's really working against you to have that extra protein. People, people think they need, you know, oh, well, you know I, I work out a couple of times a week, and I need the extra protein. Well, the amount of extra protein you need for a workout extremely minimal. We're talking about just a few grams here and there. Unless you're a world-class athlete, then you have to rethink this whole thing. But, um, yeah, protein, excess protein can be a problem with this diet, no doubt. The other thing that excess protein does, in addition to being converted to glucose, is it stimulates the, um, the um, pathway called uh, mTOR. I won't go into much of that, but the mTOR pathway is uh, necessary to stimulate um, protein synthesis in muscle. So it's great for muscle, but it also is like very uh, high on the list of things that promote um, cancer progression. So that mTOR pathway, if you give it a lot of protein, it's going to go, yes, this is a time for anabolic growth. And so the the anabolic growth is happening in the the tumor, uh, not just in the muscle. So, uh, so protein, if you have an excess of it, will increase the insulin response, which is what we're trying to avoid. Do, does dairy, milk, and eggs increase the insulin response? It depends on, um, on where you're going with that. The dairy fats uh, generally don't have any kind of, people don't have a response, an insulin response to dairy fats. 
But when you combine dairy fat with a dairy protein, like in cheese, um, the protein component of the cheese, the way in the, ca- the casing in particular with cheese, or the way that's in yogurt, those things will stimulate an insulin response that's totally independent of the glucose level. So it, you, you could be taking in just about no carbs, um, but if you're, you know, if you're eating um, a lot of cheese, not small amounts, but just if, if you're eating a lot of cheese or, um, or you're using protein bars that are um, made from whey protein, you're very likely to be uh, interfering with the effect you want to get. Is skim milk worse than the milk that has a healthy fat? Uh, yeah, so it definitely. Um, as far as a ketogenic diet goes, no milk is appropriate. So as far as dairy goes, you've got the dairy fats, which are basically butter, ghee, heavy whipping cream, uh, sour cream, uh, and then you have the dairy proteins. Uh, and the, really the only dairy protein would be small amounts of, of cheese. If you start adding other, if you add like cottage cheese, soft cheeses like that, um, they are higher in protein. Yogurt's higher in protein. Excuse me, higher in protein, and those things can all be problematic. Because anytime you're raising insulin, you're raising another anabolic hormone as well, and you're suppressing what your liver is trying to do in terms of making ketones. Okay, well, we're coming to a break. So on the other side of the break, we'll continue this conversation and find out more about this diet and how it can affect cancer patients as well as the rest of us. Be back soon. Sounds good. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health and says everything is in working order, perhaps you aren't feeling at the top of your game. Dr. Rebecca Risk overcame pain and fatigue despite all tests to the contrary. Learn how she put her health back on track and how you can too on Falling Through the Cracks. Live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to drsusan at occupyhealth.com. That's drsusan at occupyhealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. 
Welcome back. Uh, we're here learning all about the ketogenic diet and how it helps cancer. So, Miriam, um, tell me about, uh, I mean, it's been a, a craze lately of using coconut oil and MCT oil because this is uh, helps us get into ketosis. Do you recommend these? I, I certainly do. Uh, very strongly, they're among the simplest and safest food sources of um, being able to boost your ketone levels. Um, sometimes coconut oil is, is the, the, the um, effect of it is sort of overblown. It has other good effects. There's, it's almost half of it is something called lauric acid. And lauric acid has antimicrobial, antiviral effects. And those are, are good for us. Um, but it's not as ketogenic as the MCT oil. And uh, so I like people to use a combination of things because this diet's high fat. So let's bring in as many of the things that will, um, the healthy fats that are going to support health. Uh, you know, people are, they hear all these mixed messages about coconut oil and it's a saturated fat, so it's evil. And, you know, I just want everyone to know that there is no science that says that there's, there's no, there really is no evidence that um, the saturated fats are that um, problematic for us, really. And especially when you're following a ketogenic diet, you're going to be burning fat. You're going to be using it for fuel. So it's, it's not competing with anything else at that point. It's being, it's being used as the fuel. What about the Bulletproof diet? Um, I, you know, Bulletproof diet, hmm, I, use, I recommend Bulletproof coffee to people. I'm not sure what the rest of the diet might um, uh, consist of, but uh, I use Bulletproof coffee as a way of extending the morning fast because I think that meal timing is, is a really important um, component of, uh, of getting this right, getting this tuned in for each individual person. So like when I get up in the morning and I, I have a cup of coffee, I'll, I'll have my first cup of coffee pretty straight, but my second cup of coffee that I have, and I only have two, um, I put coconut oil and uh, MCT in it. And that keeps me going to the point where I get up like at 6.30, but I'm never ready for breakfast until 9.30, 10 o'clock, and it doesn't matter what I'm doing. In the meantime, I've got plenty of energy, um, plenty of brain power uh, to get through those couple of hours. And the, and the science on the benefits of having an extended fasting period um, and, a, and a narrow eating window are just uh, so compelling that uh, I recommend this for everybody, whether they have cancer or not. Okay. So you'd recommend, for example, maybe stopping eating like 5 or 6 in the evening and going 12, 14, or maybe 16 hours without eating overnight? You bet. Mm-hmm. And some people do, in even in, you know, for short periods of time, they'll do an even narrower eating window. But it's hard to get the amount of fat. Um, that you need. You can get the total calories if you're on a standard diet, but on a ketogenic diet, it's hard to compress that down into just uh, four hours. So I like to see that eating window be a little wider. But one of the important things about the um, the uh, meal timing, like you brought up, finish like five, six o'clock, that's uh, really important if you go to bed at like 10 o'clock um, 
for people who are up till 12 or 1 in the morning, which I don't recommend, they might be able to push it a little bit later. And some people just can't eat earlier because, uh, you know, because they don't get home from work and they're just not prepared to eat till then. So um, what you can do if that's the case is just, you know, just do it on the other side of it. So in the next morning, push it even closer and maybe your first meal of the day wouldn't be till closer to lunch. Now, in your book, you mentioned that a plant-based diet might help prevent cancer, but there's no research saying that it helps you once you've got the cancer diagnosis. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a there's a whole movement, and it's a very fervent movement with a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of power behind it. Um, but there's not a lot of science behind it, and uh, so. When you're looking at, when you're comparing like a, a vegetarian plant-based diet, basically, with a ketogenic diet, the amount of animal protein that's actually in a ketogenic diet, as opposed to something like paleo or even an Atkins, is so low. It amounts to, you know, uh, very little of your total intake for the day. So um, why not get it from high-quality uh, protein? So, you know, I'm a, I'm a strong advocate for, for using the highest quality um, meat and fish and eggs that you can, um, but I, I just don't have this fear about, uh, you know, having to avoid those products. Plus, there is, uh, there's a whole uh, segment of research that looks at some of the anti-nutrients that are in diets that are 80% plant-based. A lot of people aren't they just don't tolerate those anti-nutrients that are in plants, and those are in plants as a defense against being consumed or destroyed. Um, so, you know, they're, they're built into the plant. This is nothing that's added to it. And you don't find those kinds of anti-nutrients in, in meats. Now, you also say that there's no evidence for the Mediterranean diet, which happens to have starch in it. So that doesn't sound like it would fulfill the requirements for a ketogenic diet as well? No, you can't really make a Mediterranean diet into a ketogenic diet because they, they're working at about 40. Sometimes they'll go a little higher, 40% though, um, fat. And it's still this talk about reducing the amount of saturated fat. You know, I think they get a lot of things right, like uh, adding, you know, high-quality olive oil, adding nuts and seeds, um, but as far, and, and that may be perfectly appropriate for prevention uh, early on in life, but uh, it's not a good uh, cancer treatment diet, and I don't think it's necessarily all that great for people as they get older. We, we layer on decades of um, metabolic issues as we get older, and, and like I said earlier about the uh, brain glucose metabolism, uh, you know, that's, you're still going to be very glucose-reliant on a Mediterranean diet. What about the alkaline diet? Uh, interesting. Uh, let's go back to what I said about what glucose fermentation is doing. It's pushing um, acid in the form of lactate, lactic acid. It's pushing that out into the area around the cell, and that's very toxic. Um, but... What's going on in your body in terms of, of acid and alkaline is very, very tightly regulated. You can't change that through diet. That's not going to, you can change your urine pH, you can change your saliva pH, but those things have nothing to do with cancer. Um, they have a little bit to do with things like kidney stones, 
Um, but there's some easy fixes for, for that. So you don't need to, uh, to have a diet that you don't, it's just one more thing for people to stress over that I think is just so irrelevant in the cancer world that they just let it go. What about the normal world? Does the alkaline diet and the alkaline water, uh, is that of use or is it uh, misguided? I, I think it's misguided. I think people can easily take it to an extreme. There are um, things, there are bad things that happen in the body if you push your um, your um, if you push alkaline um, uh, water in particular. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm, I don't go there with that. If people choose to do uh, alkaline water, I don't have a problem with that. I just don't want people to be stressing over one, one more thing and losing sight of what's really important, which is the meal composition, ketogenic, keep staying in ketosis, feeling good, um, you know, hitting those cancer cells hard. Uh, I don't want them to lose the focus on that and get it lost in whether, you know, how much lemon they need to have in a day. What if somebody's a vegan or a vegetarian? You, you can do this diet. Um, you have to be a very committed um, vegan to do it. Um, and, and I would say if you're doing it for health, if you think it's going to help you health-wise, you know, let that go. Uh, if you're doing it for ethical reasons, you probably have a really good handle also on um, how to make it work in terms of getting the amount of protein that you need. And I've seen people be able to control their blood glucose level um, on a vegan diet. I, 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 I'm sold on it uh, for some people who come into it really wanting to do it. Uh, I I'm continue to work with uh, one woman who is now six years out on uh, glioblastoma multiforme, GBM brain tumor, which most people don't survive past 12 or 14 months. She's six years out. She did it for the first five years as a vegan, and in the last year, she's felt a little depleted, so she started adding uh, fish to the diet and a few other things. I can't recall what right now, but primarily fish. So, uh, like I said, there's so little animal protein that's uh, a part of this diet that, um, you know, you, you could do it um, as a pescatarian. Uh, it just makes it more complex, takes more of your time if you're trying to go vegan. But if, if it's for ethical reasons, I, you know, I don't want to get in the way of that on anybody. Are there any contraindications to this diet? Oh, yeah, you bet. Um, there, most of the really severe things are identified in childhood because they're things that affect metabolism. So uh, if you're an adult and uh, you haven't experienced any of these or if you've ever tried the Atkins and you haven't experienced any of these issues, um, then you're probably good to go as an adult as far as the metabolics go. Um, there are other things that uh, can, compl- can complicate the diet, uh, adopting the diet, like uh, mm, liver, liver disease, pancreatic disease, and I don't mean um, diabetes there. Um, I mean like things like panc- pancreatitis uh, because we depend on those two organs to regulate a lot of the activities, the metabolic activities. And uh, if, you, if they're occupied with other activities, it's going to make them hard to do the job of uh, maintaining ketosis. So other than those categories that you just mentioned, uh, is this... Uh, other people, are they good candidates for this diet? 
Well, I always do. And I, I ask some people to uh, submit an intake. It's a pretty basic intake because I want to see what else is going on in their bodies, um, what their history has, has been. Uh, so people with renal disease got to be more careful or I'll find out that they have um, uh, you know, other diseases that may, uh, like a histamine intolerance, so that, you know, you know, we have to kind of alter what they're eating in terms of the animal protein. Um, but uh, those things don't preclude the use of the diet. They just require a lot of um, proactive um, uh, intervention as, you know, even before the person starts the diet. Because what I don't like to see is somebody starting the diet, then figuring out that there's a problem, and then you try to fix it midstream. People lose their motivation. They lose their, um, yeah, I guess just basically the motivation to keep going because they're just not feeling well. Uh, certain hormone issues, like uh, if somebody, uh, a lot of people I work with are hypothyroid, and a lot of people that are hypothyroid uh, get that way through uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune disease. So for those people, I, I start them at a higher carbohydrate level, uh, and then as they get as their as their hormones adjust to that, uh, we can lower the amount of carbohydrate if we need to to get better ketosis, or we can find so why, other ways. Why do you start at a higher carbohydrate rate for those with Hashimoto's disease? Um, because there is a temporary disruption in the um, amount of uh, thyroid hormone, a thyroid-stimulating hormone. So in the first month or two of the diet, um, that number can be way off, thyroid-stimulating hormone. It has to do with a competition of, with some enzymes going on there. Um, but it straightens out. So if people experience that, you know, if I'm looking at their, um, their labs or they tell me, oh, my doctor said this is really bad for me. Um, it's usually because they've, they've started at like 12 or 15 grams of carbohydrate. I don't really see those kinds of problems, this disruptions in hormone if we start somewhere around 25 or even 30 grams of carbohydrate. So are you saying that the ketogenic diet affects the thyroid hormone, such as the thyroid-stimulating hormone or the conversion of T4 to T3? Yeah, only in the only in the beginning of the diet, and it's uh, and most times it's not symptomatic. So in other words, somebody's hormones may uh, that thyroid stimulating hormone level goes up, but uh, but they're not experiencing any symptoms. But the doctor is going strictly by what <laughs> he's looking at or she's looking at in the lab work and goes, oh, this is affecting your thyroid. And it's just again, it's one of those things that just um, creates fear in people. That's it's kind of an unnecessary place to go to if you're, uh, and even if you are experiencing symptoms, those symptoms could very well be due to the cancer treatment that you're receiving. My God, I mean, just think of what cancer treatment does to people. It's a, it's a, it does disrupt hormones. Without a doubt, it disrupts hormones. Sometimes on purpose when you look at, like breast cancer treatments. So, uh, so if your thyroid hormone goes up for a couple of months, or you miss, if you're a, a woman and you miss your menstrual period, so what? You're doing something that is ultimately uh, beneficial. Your body's just taking a little bit of time to adjust from relying on carbs and living in that world to, uh, you know, to a world where it's living on the fats, and it will adjust. Speaking of labs adjusting, doesn't the LDL cholesterol, which is the bad guy, uh, go up? The HDLs, which is the good guy, goes up, and your total cholesterol goes up? Won't that alarm the physicians as well? 
Yeah, it does alarm physicians. It doesn't happen all the time, uh, and that's it's all it's very complicated. But the bottom line is uh, that the triglycerides are much more important uh, marker of cardiovascular health, and uh, and a ketogenic diet brings those triglyceride numbers down. I've only seen two cases where triglycerides went sky high, and I and I think there was really some metabolic. Um, uh, just aberration that uh, I couldn't tell from a distance what was going on, and uh, the uh, the team wasn't interested in doing any testing to figure out what was going on. So, um, so yeah, triglycerides will you know come back down into a normal level. LDL can go up, but there's a lot of people. Uh, you know, you look at uh, you know Jimmy Moore's book. Uh, Eric Westman's uh, clinical experience. You look at David Diamond's tearing apart the statistics on that. And, and so I don't believe there's any reason to worry about LDL. And Susan, let me tell you this. this I mean, just this is, this one just blew me away. I was working with a young man in his mid-20s. And uh, he had just been told by his doctor that he only had about three months. He had brain cancer. He only had about three months of life left. And for I don't know what reason, she runs a lipid panel on him, and she sees that his LDL is high. And so she's going to, like, put him on a statin. Oh. What are, what are you doing here? What's the, why did you even test? You just told the same doctor that told him he has three months to live is now worrying about whether he's going to die of heart disease. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So some of these things that are considered standard, in uh, conventional monitoring and treatment just don't work when you're talking about um, cancer. They just don't work. They, they don't make sense. Well, I question the statins in any case. So perhaps with the uh, lipids, perhaps the ratio of the uh, triglycerides to HDL gets better. Perhaps the number and size of the smaller LDL particles gets better. So perhaps yes. the overall profile and, and the endothelial dysfunction, which are the real risk factors for yes. cardiovascular disease, perhaps those get better. But what thank if you, physician, thank you for filling that in. That is absolutely true. What if your physician says, "Hey, you can't lose weight. You're too thin right now." That uh, that hmm. sometimes they'll say it when people aren't thin. Sometimes they'll say that you know, well, we don't want you to lose weight because we know that weight loss in standard treatment with a standard diet is a poor prognostic for um, survival. So uh, I like to see a slow and sustainable weight loss in people who can tolerate that because I I believe it really puts additional pressure on cancer. Again, it's that nutrient starvation. We want to make sure people are getting the right vitamins and minerals and, you know, the fats that they need and the amino acids that they need. Um, so that's doing the caloric restriction without malnutrition. Um, if somebody is extremely lightweight and uh, and they start this diet, they are going to lose weight. But there are uh, there are ways, there are workarounds that I use um, with manipulating meal timing or adding one meal a day that has some starchy vegetable in it to help for an insulin response in that short period of time. Um, or adding some specific amino acids um, that, uh, you know, hopefully are not going to be directed towards cancer. Uh, so weight is an issue in the cancer world, uh, but a lot of people that I'm working with are coming into this. I mean, you look, 70% of people in the U.S. are overweight. And 
most of the people I'm working with are mid-age or older, which means they are even more likely to be overweight. And uh, so I don't have a problem with them losing a few pounds in the beginning. I think it helps to put pressure on the cancer. So can normal people benefit from this diet? I think so. I follow this diet. Uh, Mine is much more liberal. I take in maybe 40, sometimes maybe even 50 grams of carbohydrate a day, but I've been doing this for so long that I maintain ketosis and I do the uh, intermittent, the daily intermittent fasting, um, and I boost ketosis um, with uh, basically with just uh, coconut oil and MCT, and sometimes I use one of the newer ketone supplements that are out there. That's a whole other discussion. Uh, you say in your book that you don't want to lose more than one pound per week. So what happens if you lose weight too rapidly? Do you lose muscle? Uh, you have you put yourself at a risk of losing muscle, definitely. But the other thing that you're doing is uh, fat is where we store the fat-soluble toxins in our body, and it's also where we store hormones. So if you are losing weight too rapidly, there's this, there's this dump of that toxic stuff and in in an overload of, of fat-soluble vitamins into the bloodstream, and then your liver has to sort it out. And it's just one more thing that your liver's got to do. So... Um, so the other thing is I, I, want, the, uh, I want that uh, nutrient deprivation, um, and if you're dumping too much stuff into the, into the bloodstream at once, you're, you're sort of inadvertently feeding the wrong pathways. Um, so, yeah, I like it to be uh, sustainable. Um, I, I think for men, two pounds uh, a week is not, uh, is not a problem if they are... Uh, overweight or obese, um, but for women, I, I would much rather see them keep it about uh, a pound a week and just go on for several months at least. Uh, I've worked with people who have lost over 100 pounds, and they're still not um, at a point where uh, you know it, it's going to be a problem. So, well, if uh, you dump if you dump all those toxins into the system, it's probably important that you have a way to drain them out. Otherwise, they can just go to other parts of the body. Correct. Well, the the liver does a good job of of uh, handling them, so it's not uh, you you get if you're if the overload, yeah, uh, if it's too much for the liver to handle, then uh, you know that that can be a problem. But um, I think normally it's not a problem if you're losing just a pound for women or two pounds for men. Uh, is there any problems if you have gout or kidney stones or no gallbladder? Uh, people worry about the no gallbladder thing they, they, uh, because they're told to eat. They are directly advised to eat um, uh, less fat. You know, their meals shouldn't be fatty. Um, and they're afraid that uh, because they've had their gallbladder removed and they remember the pain associated with, with why they had to have their gallbladder removed, um, they're, they're afraid of not being able to digest the fat. But, you know, all you really need to do, to, uh, what I do, to help people get over that hump um, is a, a slower transition. I would never start somebody with gallbladder issues with a fast, ever. Okay, um, we've got so, three minutes left. And I, your book's coming out this week. I'd like to remind the listeners, Keto for Cancer, Ketogenic Metabolic Therapy as a Targeted Nutritional Strategy. It's coming out this week. And in the last two minutes, any final points, summarizing points, or how people can get a hold of you? Uh, people can get a hold of me through my website, dietarytherapies.com. 
com or um, look at my name, Miriam Kalamian. I'm the only Miriam Kalamian out there. Uh, and uh, I would say, uh, you know, listen to your inner voice. If your inner voice is saying, you know, what have I got to lose? This, this may be helpful for me. Um, you know, go there. And, uh, and yeah, you may have to tune out a lot of um, skepticism, and you may have to turn off the saboteurs in your life. And we did that, and I'm glad we did that. Uh, our son was with us a lot longer than he would have been if we had uh, just towed the line. Okay, and do uh, our oncologists and regular dietitians learning about this? Are they supportive? Uh, some are becoming more supportive, uh, and certainly they're becoming less resistant. So uh, now when somebody says they want to do the ketogenic diet, um, you, uh, they're not as likely to run into uh, the staunch resistance. They might be told diet doesn't matter. And like I said, straight off the bat, diet doesn't matter. It's a green light. Eat what you want. Okay. Uh, well, this has all been very interesting, so I would certainly... Thank you for sharing this information. This diet sounds like it could be good for those of us that do not have cancer because uh, there's a lot of studies and people say that high levels of glucose are adverse to our health. I mean, the studies used to say it was high fat, but it turns out that it's a high sugar and a high fructose corn syrup that are problems. So we can all benefit from this diet, and I'd recommend you go out and get her book. But in closing, I ask you to do your own research, uh, look in various sources, check with your physician, and uh, so you can help yourself and others, and be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. Better.